0: Support for the Double Dome podcast comes from the Sorel College of Business at Troy University, where students become geeks, an acronym for globally aware, ethical decision makers, engaged with the business community, knowledgeable to compete, and successful in business and life. More information at troy.edu slash business.
1: The opinions expressed on this program represent the viewpoints of individual authors or contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of Troy University. This is eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dan Sutter.
0: Hello and welcome to eConversations. I'm your host, Dr. Dan Sutter of the Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University. Alabama has a documented shortage of medical professionals in rural areas, and these shortages are linked to poor health co- outcomes for our residents. One way to address these shortages might be to expand Medicaid and spend more tax dollars on health care. Another alternative is deregulation. Removing two types of regulations Alabama imposes on our health care system, which restrict the supply of lower cost health care, particularly in rural areas. These are known as certificate of need and scope of practice regulations. What do they involve? What are the rationales for them? And what does the evidence show about their impacts on health care? Joining me on eConversations are two economists who have examined these regulations. Dr. David Mitchell is a distinguished professor of political economy at Ball State University, where he directs the Institute for the Study of Free Enterprise. Dr. Mitchell has published dozens of papers in the areas of public choice and also health economics. Dr. Mr. Macy Shack is a doctoral candidate in economics at Middle Tennessee State University and a fellow with MTSU's Political Economy Research Institute, which is directed by our former Troy professor and my former colleague, Dan Smith. Welcome to the conversations gentlemen.
1: Hi, thank you. Thanks. You.
0: So let, let's yep. get thank started here. And if you could, briefly, uh, each of you, uh, Macy, you're going to be talking about uh, cons, uh, Certificate of Needs, and, and uh, Mitch, you're going to be talking about uh, Scope of Practice. So Macy, to start off by telling us briefly just what it is that, that this uh, Certificate of Need is about.
2: So certificate of need, um, we may, I may reference it, or uh, Dr. Mitchell here, you, myself, or all of us included may reference it as con going forward, Um, not pros and cons, con being certificate of need. Um, But really, it's just trying, it's speaking to this regulatory mechanism um, for the state to try to uh, control um, expenditures on certain healthcare facilities, um, or even the operation or opening
0: of new facilities. And uh, how about scope of practice, Mesh? Because you've done research on this.
1: Yeah, scope of practice is these rules and regulations delineating what different health professionals can do. And my research is about nurse practitioners. Some states have very strict rules on what nurse practitioners can do by themselves. Other states let nurse practitioners practice independently, what we call full scope of practice. No. and the rules are designed to sound like they're safety enhancing, and sometimes they are, and sometimes they are to protect special interests.
0: So, and and we'll get much into these uh, in a little bit, but uh, one problem Alabama does have that I think is pretty widely recognized is we have a a healthcare shortage uh, Healthcare practitioner shortage. This is a a map showing uh, the counties in Alabama. There's actually supposed to be white on this map. Any county that didn't have any uh, healthcare professional shortage would be colored in white. And you see that no counties in Alabama are colored in white. A few of them are in the light blue, which is sort of showing uh, a moderate level of of shortage. And then dark blue is a shortage throughout the, the county. So we do have a problem here, right? This is a shortage of healthcare.
1: Oh yeah, it's a real, it's a real shortage. So Alabama has 127 designated health professional shortage areas. So a health professional shortage area is an area where there's less than one doctor per 3,500 patients, or for some reason the patients are extra sick or extra poor, then you need one doctor per 3,000. If you don't have that, you have what's called a health professional shortage. Uh, In Alabama, over 2.7 million people are affected by that. And we would, you would need in Alabama another 349 physicians to even come close to solving. And that, would, that would give you the bare minimum. If you had another 349 primary care physicians, that would get you at the bare minimum. Um,
0: also be assuming that they'd want to go live in these areas where we need them. They do have to so, want to live
1: in the rural areas. And that's, that's often the dilemma is that you don't have enough physicians, but also that physicians don't want to live in, in some of these rural areas. Mm-hmm. You just can't attract them, yeah. Um, and the only way to to get healthcare providers spreading out into these more rural areas is to expand supply, and that usually means nurse practitioners.
0: No, both of these laws are, are established by states, and that, that that means from an economic standpoint. If you're an economics researcher, you get very excited when you hear that. So like you know, Macy, if you could, like, tell us why is it so great from a, a research perspective that these uh, laws are established at the state level and you know, that not all states have all of these regulations?
2: Well, um, again, like you sort of hinted at there, um, economists love variation, right? So we want to see differences across states. We want to see states that have programs, states that don't have programs. Um, and so in terms of certificate of need, um there i think are 35 states in dc operate um some sort of con program so that leaves a handful that don't um and that lets us as researchers sort of examine the health outcomes um across these different states and and like you mentioned um the the programs cover different uh facilities and different uh, capital expenditures as well so this allows uh sort of um for good research we can see oh what is what is this state doing versus um, another state how can we improve and how can we try to make um, health Healthcare more accessible to these rural um, rural patients.
0: All right, so now let's uh, dive a little deeper into both of these types of regulations. We'll start with the, the con regulations. So uh, I was actually interested as a, in a study that you, uh, you, you co authored with Dr. Smith, uh, Macy, that these uh, regulations actually go back to the 1970s, or at least uh, nationwide. It's, tell us a little bit about that, and then also tell us a little bit about like what do people think that these regulations are going to accomplish uh, for the good?
2: Yeah. So, again, you're right. Um, This started in the mid-'70s, I think, 1974. um, There was a federal mandate um, that required all states to open sort of a health planning agency. Um, So some states sort of retain that name, and that's what they'll be called now, and they won't necessarily call themselves con or con laws. Um, A lot of them, I think, even in the case of Alabama, um, it's called the State Health Planning Development Agency. Um, So, not necessarily a con program, but it is a con program in disguise. Um, And what happened is the federal government um, implemented this mandate across all the states. Um, Sometime in the 80s, um, the federal mandate was actually repealed. Um, And again, it's hard to find sort of, and uh, politicians don't want to come out and say explicitly, this is why we repealed this program, but I think it's safe to say it probably wasn't very effective. Um, And then in mid 80s, you had um, states had the choice, right? They could keep the program, they could repeal these con programs along with the federal mandate repeal. Um, And so we saw some, uh, like I mentioned before, variation take place in um, the 1980s. Um, So some states completely repealed um, their con programs, states like California, um, Texas, Pennsylvania. Um, Other states decided to keep their con programs like Tennessee and Alabama. Um, and then some states, like Tennessee and Alabama, actually just decided to expand um, what facilities um, are covered under, this, um, under these laws.
0: And it, it actually turns out, I mean, I think there's something on the order of about three dozen or so different, very uh, types of different facilities uh, that, that, that could be uh, covered by this. And so it varies from state to state. When we say, like, states are a con state, they actually could have anywhere, as long as they have at least one, they, they sort of fall in that, that heading but I, I think you know, something like the, the one with the most has about 37 or so different uh, uh, things, right?
2: Yes, that's true. I, I believe it's Hawaii um, has the most, um, most facilities and actions. So the, the, the con breaks two things apart. So sometimes it's, they're speaking about facility requirements. You're mm-hmm. not able to open a hospital. Um, and then additionally, there's actions that require approval as well, being we want to expand beds. We want to invest into this new medical technology. Um, so it, the restriction is actually two part. Um, and so, like you said, um it sort of varies, right? Tennessee has um, where I'm at now, has um, I think a little bit uh, a couple more, maybe four or five more different facilities uh, that they regulate compared to Alabama. Um, but I believe I think Alabama's with seventeen or so different types of facilities, and right, these range from hospitals to drug abuse facilities mm-hmm. um, and all sorts of different actions um, within these facilities.
0: and And so then, on the one hand, the, the thought is that if you have these medical professionals, or and actually the certificate need model can actually be applied in other industries and not just medicine. But the idea is that if you have um, health, you know, professionals in the industry, they might be able to judge what facilities would be necessary and then what might be unnecessary. And uh, if, if they don't approve the unnecessary ones, then we don't have end, up, end up having to pay for them. And it might end up uh, driving costs higher. But... It seems like there's a obvious problem with that and that is if you give people who are already in the industry the ability to veto their ability their, their uh, people entering the industry that's going to cause a problem right
2: yeah a hundred percent so and, and what's important I think to recognize is in the 70s the, the issue and, and the reason uh, this federal mandate came about was trying to limit this excess spending um, and the source of the excess spending was um, actually due to the insurance incentives at the time so mm-hmm. we functioned on, or the hospitals functioned on, um, a cost, uh, plus reimbursement. Um, so any, any health, health facility, any cost that they incur, they would get reimbursed through insurance plus some on top, I think around 10%. Um, and sort of as the insurance, uh, as insurance sort of, uh, fix or changed to a fixed cost structure, um, and started adopting, like we see now today, there's codes and there's certain Um, universal uh, uh, refunds that are done on behalf of insurance, and it's not this arbitrary, whatever you cost you incur plus 10%, um, that original reason for con is sort of of, uh, evaporated, right? And now we see there's three new modern uh, claims as to what con programs um, allow for, and this is gonna be higher quality um, uh, facilities, um, increased access to care and um, lower prices, right? Um, and, and we can get into the specifics later, um, but that's kind of what's going on is originally there was this perverse incentive and we've seen it sort of change over time and it sort of questions why why are these con programs still operating?
0: Okay. So then let's turn to uh, uh, Mitch here and, and the scope of practice. And, and again, this is a, uh, we're talking about within the healthcare profi- uh, context, but it's a, a type of regulation that also gets applied elsewhere. I think uh, uh, in, in the field of dentistry, whether dental hygienists are allowed to clean teeth on their own or not is, is also related to the scope of practice. So just in case, you, you could sometimes hear these, uh, these actual types of regulations uh, talked about in other contexts, but we are in the healthcare context, what's sort of the, the rationale for scope of practice?
1: So, the idea behind scope of practice, the, the public, uh, the, the idea that, that, that it's a good law, the way that it's sold by proponents, is, is always that this will protect patients. And the reason is that physicians have more training than nurse practitioners. So, let's go through that. Nurse practitioners have a bachelor's degree and an RN, they have to be registered nurses as well as nurse practitioners. Then they go to graduate school in nursing. They take two to three years of graduate courses plus clinical hours. Physicians have an undergraduate degree, then they go to med school for four years, then they do their residency. That's where physicians really learn to be physicians is in their residency. Then they may or may not do a fellowship kind of, depending on what their specialty is. But for primary care, they do their residency normally. So they have more training. It would seem like the more training would lead to being better healthcare providers. What we see in the evidence is that they're about the same, and I don't really care how hard you worked. What I care about is how good you are. I want to measure the output of healthcare, not the input of how hard you worked to get to become a a provider. Um, And that's really hard for people to, to understand is that physicians work harder to become providers, but then they don't seem to provide primary care any better than nurse practitioners. And there's even some randomized control trials about that. Where they compare nurse practitioners to physicians in primary care, and the results are the same.
0: So yeah, we, we can talk some more about that. But one of the issues is like you know, with um, if we're going to oh, try to rely on, on physicians, is that yep. uh, you know you you mentioned that we might need an extra 350 gen, uh, general practitioner uh, nurse, uh, physicians here in Alabama. But one problem is that the the supply of, or the number of of doctors, medical doctors, hasn't been increasing very much. But by contrast, uh, nurse practitioners have been increasing pretty dramatically, right?
1: Yeah, the number of nurse practitioners in the last 12 years has more than doubled. Um, And that's really impressive, that's really impressive. Like they're just spreading out everywhere. Um, I think that makes physicians nervous. But the scope of practice regulation means that those nurse practitioners, when they want to spread out everywhere, can't because they have to work under either under the supervision or sometimes it's called the collaboration of a physician. So that means a physician is overseeing them and that makes it harder for them to move out. Um, And sometimes nurse practitioners will set up on their own under a collaborative practice agreement uh, where the physician is theoretically overseeing them but, you know, physicians charge for that, and they charge yeah. between $500 and $1,500 per, per month. And if you think about a small business, paying an extra $500 to $1,500 per month, that's a lot of money. That's just a, mm-hmm. a tremendous amount of money. And it really means you could never go somewhere where most of your patients are on Medicaid or Medicare. Um, Medicaid just doesn't reimburse well. Reimburse the fancy health word for how much you get paid for each procedure you do. And Medicaid pays very little. And so you could never have a practitioner go to a, a poor rural area where a lot of people are on Medicaid if they also have to pay this additional fee. Oh. All right, so- um, but, yeah, that's what the scope of practice rules are in Alabama, that nurse practitioners have to be supervised by physicians.
0: So let's turn down a little bit, because because we have this variation across states, economists, and economists need to publish, and they want to publish, they, they can take advantage yep. of this and, and uh, investigate. So, uh, Macy, start with, some, tell us a little bit about some of the, uh, the findings from this research uh, having to do with the certificate of need rules.
2: Yeah, so um,
1: there,
2: the... Most of the research has done focuses on the three goals, right? I think that's the best way to sort of analyze whether something's fulfilling what it's mm-hmm. designed to do, right? So we want higher quality, we want lower prices, and we want especially rural access or increased access overall. Um, most of the research and, and there are a few uh, a few studies that find that con programs are effective in doing some of their goals, but most of the overwhelming body of research points to actually uh, lower quality uh, health care um, in, at increased costs and no real uh, effect for rural residents, right? Mm-hmm. So I think if any policy has either no effect or a negative effect, people would sort of maybe want to step back and question what 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 is this policy achieving if not if anything? Um, and the the way that they look at this are, is multiple ways. So there's just general um, does it limit o- expenditure?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and so the studies that do find that it does limit hospital investment or expenditure. Um, it's, it's it's what you would expect to find, right? So if you make the process of expanding beds or investing in medical care more, or medical equipment, um, you make it more tedious and um, a long drawn out process, um, you would expect to see less investment. So on, on that front, it, it, it's no surprise. But the question is, does this really lead to higher quality and increased access? And um, the research just really doesn't show that that's the case.
0: So uh, tell us, a, uh, elaborate a little bit for our, our uh, listeners, because. You mentioned about how there's lots of studies done and a few of them show sometimes occasionally that certificate of need laws uh, might be accomplishing these goals, but the the majority of them don't. So how how do we sort of make sense of this? Is it just a matter of like, oh, well, he said, she said, or how how do we make sense of this uh, and and what does it mean when you you see some results uh, across different things? Does it mean we we can't really learn anything or, or what?
2: No, I think uh, naturally um, there's going to be disagreement, right? And uh, because I think there's going to be variation across how many services, I, I don't mm-hmm. think that you can argue that in Tennessee, one of the regulate or one of the facilities that is regulated is burn centers. Okay, um, I think there's only two in the whole state. Um, but so you got to take some of these results with a grain of salt because you have to imagine that a a standalone burn center operates a little differently than maybe a full general hospital Mm -hmm. right so and that can explain why researchers may look at different things Um, they may look at different measures right and they may have um, a a certain rationale as to why oh well this measure or this this hospital that deals uh, exclusively with medicaid patients has different results than this other hospital that deals with um, a different kind of uh, patient base Mm -hmm. Um, so but I, i think it, it can be confusing at times, but I think time is um, ultimately on our side as we can more and more researchers dig into it. Um, and, you, and, and in that policy study that Dr. Smith and I wrote um, that you showed here at the beginning, um, we go through service by service, um, every single study and try to, um, I guess, summarize the results the best we can. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's very little dissenting evidence, right? There's two or three papers here or there, but overwhelming um, overwhelming evidence for lack of quality um, higher prices and no real effect on on access. Actually, in some cases, patients even driving out of state um, to a non-con state in order to um, receive uh, healthcare.
0: Okay, so, then uh, let's turn it to Dr. Mitchell. What, what tell us a little bit about this research because you mentioned that there's been some uh, randomized control trials. Which you know, not, tell us a little bit about what that involves because in the the healthcare field, that's like the gold standard of. Of research, when you can do that, that that's really that—that's the top of the line.
1: So, I mean, there's a study. It's in JAMA. It's the journal you've heard of. It's in JAMA. It's in 2000, right? So this is this is old paper. It's a paper that we've known about for a long time, and they take the people coming in who need primary care, and they just randomly assign them to physicians or NPs, and they get the same the same result. Awesome. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, go ahead. Say it again? Go ahead.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, I guess a physician theoretically could say, well, you know, they did take the absolute sickest people and who didn't need primary care and need something beyond primary care and give them to physicians. And I would say, yeah, nurse practitioners specialize in primary care mostly. Right. Um, That's what they do. And so when you compare nurse practitioners to people who, to physicians who do primary care, nurse practitioners do a great job. I don't really know why you would compare them to people who don't do primary care that would be kind of weird yeah um yeah it'd be like comparing economists to theater professors on whether or not we were good at you know doing theater that would be strange yeah um but when you compare nurse practitioners to primary care physicians nurse practitioners do a great job and when you let nurse practitioners do work we get a lot of stuff so one there's a, a paper um by uh schnell Oh, crikey, I'm blanking on her name. There's there's some research uh, looking at what happens when nurse practitioners can provide uh, prescriptions for anxiety and depression. Suicide Mm -hmm. goes down. That sounds like a good thing to me. Um, My own work is on primary care. I look at diabetic debridement. So diabetes is very common, and Alabama's got a lot of it. And those counties that you looked at where there's not enough health professionals to go around, those are places that have a lot of diabetes. And so we looked at diabetic debridement because it's something that shows that your diabetes was not treated properly. Um, ideally your diabetes is taken care of and you don't need debridement. Um, debridement is when they have to scrape like the dead and dying skin off of your feet. Usually, uh, nurse practitioners don't do that. It's normally podiatrists. It's, it is one of those things that makes you as an economist, very glad that you don't have to touch people that you don't have, we're not actually in health. Um, But we found that when states changed their laws, that people in rural counties got their diabetes treated better by not needing diabetic debridement the following year, the following year. And it wasn't that nurse practitioners suddenly opening up new clinics all over the rural areas. It's that the scope of practice rules where they have to be supervised by physicians is actually very time consuming. And if you think about it, if a nurse practitioner spends a couple of hours each week getting permission to do various treatments from physicians that means the physician's not seeing a patient and the nurse practitioner's not seeing a patient so we didn't see any anything in urban areas but in rural areas where there's so few providers just having an extra hour a week made a huge difference we saw a dramatic drop in in the number of debridements that people needed in rural counties in the states that did it and that was the immediate effect, that wasn't a chance to sort of say, hey, now that we've done this, can we attract new nurse practitioners? Can we get nurse practitioners to open up new clinics? Can we get nurse practitioners to start thinking about working more hours than they already do? This is just the immediate quick down and dirty impact. And it was it's really impressive that people got their diabetes treated better.
0: Well, that, that's awesome to hear. Uh, now, let's think uh, overall. So uh, we, we've seen that the, the evidence shows that these regulations don't work so well; certainly, don't work as advertised. Uh, when it comes to possibly thinking about deregulating or eliminating these regulations here in Alabama, how much of a benefit might we possibly uh, be seeing here? So, I mean, you know, uh, Macy, you mentioned that the costs are a little bit higher. Well, but. Like, about how much higher, how, you know, what, what are we talking about here? A little bit, or a lot, or, or what, what are we looking at?
2: Yeah, so um, I actually, Mercatus does a lot of work on certificate of need, um, and they, um, specifically um, about Alabama. And they estimated that if Alabama um, did a full repeal of their con program, um, the per capita savings would be about $200 a year. Um, which is pretty sizable, mm-hmm. um, and they also estimated that they would go from forty-one rural hospitals up to fifty-eight. Um, oh. So that would be an increase of, of seventeen um, rural hospitals that they don't have now.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it, it, and it's important to think about that because I mean, you, you know, that's shorter, uh, you know, that, that's shorter trips to the hospital, that's shorter um, uh, ambulance rides in the in the time of uh, an emergency, and uh, you know, so not just like the the uh, the care there, but there, there is also a lot of uh, extra burdens on, on consumers the farther you have to, to go to, to get treatment, right?
2: Yeah, and, and that's only half of the story, right? This Up until this point, we've only been thinking about the patient or the consumer. Um, but these laws affect workers as well, right? They affect mm. um, nurse practitioners. They affect doctors. They affect all of these people. Um, and, and think about the kind of jobs that come with 17 additional hospitals, right? You have... Um, you have nurses you have staff you have people working in the cafeteria you have t- tons of, uh, of room for growth um, and I think that's that's also the other side of the coin that a lot of people don't think about is um, by restricting access um, you're also making it harder for these nurses to have find competitive wages or doctors to um, mm-hmm. find competitive wages across these different um, surgical centers or, or hospitals
0: yeah yeah because yeah, it is after all it is competition between different uh, uh, businesses that, that we believe bids uh, people's salaries and wages up to the level that, that, that uh, their productivity allows them to be paid. So that's an important consideration. And then, I mean, there's also probably, you know, the, the element from uh, economic development in rural areas. If your county, if your area doesn't have a hospital or medical center, then I mean, that's just another strike against you when it comes to trying to recruit or re, uh, retain businesses. I'm sure it's gotta be very high up on the list of like, how close is the nearest uh, you know, hospital if, if you're thinking about locating some uh, a business somewhere, right?
2: Yeah, 100%. And that is kind of where these two sort of uh, laws come hand to hand, right? Scope of practice and con. Um, It's naturally why they're in an an episode here together, um, because Khan sort of um, is the regulation surrounding how can you establish medical facilities. Um, And then to Dr. Mitchell's point, um, scope of practice laws are really speaking to what are these people in these facilities able to do? Um, And both of those need to be addressed in order to ensure we have really good rural access to healthcare.
0: And it's important to point out here is like, this is not, we could achieve these two uh, forms of, of deregulation without spending more taxpayer dollar on this. I mean, usually, when you're talking about improving health care, improving anything else, and you're talking about the government doing it, it's usually like, okay, how big of a check does the do you have to write from the Treasury to, to make these good things happen? But this wouldn't actually cost us anything off the budget, right?
2: Yeah, yeah no, 100%. You- um I think one of the things that's
1: really exciting is, you know, a big part of every state budget is the the Medicaid b- part of budgets, right? It's just a big chunk. It's like $7 billion in Alabama. So nurse practitioners save you money in two different ways. Uh, one, they make less money. They, they actually earn less money. They get reimbursed at a lower rate than physicians do. So that is pushing prices down. Um, shifting the supply curve out is pushing prices down. So there's that sort of supply shifting the supply curve out with lower cost things is pushing prices down. The other thing that's happening is you're getting things taken care of quickly early on when it's cheaper. It's always cheaper to deal with things early than it is late. If you have diabetes, it's cheaper to see a primary care provider and get that taken care of early than it is late because late means you have diabetic blindness and diabetic necrophilia and you're getting like amputations. It's all terrible. So there's a range of estimates about how much just the, the prices would come down, not the savings on getting things done early as opposed to late, but just pushing right. prices down. So if you take the most conservative estimate, the most conservative estimate with the prices coming down would be is 3%. You say, well, that doesn't sound like very much money. Then you remember that Alabama spends about $7 billion yeah. on on Medicaid. So you think, well, 3% of that, if that price could come down 3%, you know, that's... 21 million dollars. Twenty-one million here, twenty-one million there. Damn, before you know it, you've got real money in a state budget. Yeah, but I well, can't help but think, okay, thanks. if you guys kind of save twenty one million a year, if you save twenty one million a year, what could you do with it? Well, first you could give it back to the taxpayers. Yeah. Second, you could do education, you could do all kinds of things, like twenty-one million a year. That's a lot.
0: Well, well, thanks very much both of you for coming on and talk about this. I appreciate it very much. And thank you all for joining us. Join us again next time for another e
1: This has been e a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Econ-
0: Support for the Double Dome podcast comes from the Sorrell College of Business at Troy University, where students become geeks, an acronym for globally aware, ethical decision makers, engaged with the business community, Knowledgeable to compete and successful in business and life. More information at troy.edu slash business.